This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Uh, hello, my name's Nigel Featherstone. I'm here with the extraordinary Samuel Elliott, and um, I'm on his amazing The Right Way podcast. And it's an absolute thrill to be here talking about my new novel, My Heart is a Little Wild Thing. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction there, Nigel Featherstone. And hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott. Person whom you just heard introducing this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program is none other than tonight's guest, uh, Nigel Featherstone. Nigel Featherstone and I uh, discussed his latest novel, My Heart is a Little Wild thing that uh, is now out with the good folks at Ultimo Press. So this is not the first time I've had the immense good fortune of speaking to Nigel about his work, his writing. I also got to speak to him a few years back about his uh, historical fiction uh, novel that came out then was released, Bodies of Men, uh, sent around two men in World War II, two active soldiers that were enlisted. Uh, and yeah, I had absolute blast speaking to Nigel about his writing there, he writes very beautifully, and tonight I got to speak to him about My Heart is a Little Wild Thing, which follows uh, Patrick as a violent incident, which I don't want to spoil, because uh, it has one of the best uh, opening lines I've read in a good long while, uh, so I don't want to spoil that too much, but yes, anyway, so after this violent act, this inciting incident, Patrick then heads to a place that has uh, strong familial uh, historical ties, significant ties to his life, albeit his his youth, his childhood with his family, uh, Jimin Buen, Jimin Buen, I believe it is, or Jimin Buen, I'll get uh, the correct pronunciation from Nigel, but yes, heads there, and there, there's a sort of a chance encounter, uh, he meets Lewis, uh, and then the, the two men are naturally drawn to one another, along with sharing the the wonders of the landscape and the uh, creatures that inhabit it as well. And then kind of digging into the nitty gritty of what is life, really, what is uh, what is love, what is the familial sense of obligation and duty and the privilege of looking after one's, one's uh, aging and deteriorating parents. Lots of um, big big questions, complex themes and issues that uh, has become kind of synonymous with Nigel's writing, but uh, never not uh, just an absolute joy to read and incredibly easy to do so. Nice lean prose there, which um, we've discussed before. But yeah, far be it from me to kind of spoil all that for you. I'd much rather you got to hear from the from the man himself, from the writer himself. So everyone, please give a big digital round of applause to me talking to Nigel Featherstone about his new novel, My Heart is a Little Wild Thing. Nigel, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way Podcast program this bitterly cold evening. How are you doing? Yes, well, I've got a beanie, I've got tracksuit pants, I've got um, thermals, and I've got, of course, Ugg boots, so I might survive the night. Is there a heater in the vicinity cranking? Yes, yes. I sometimes I have the fire going. Um, oh, lovely. Yeah, which is nice. I only try to do it once a week because it's just I do worry about the wood. But um, because it's such an old house, it actually a fire actually dries the the house out. Mm. Um, you like like it's I don't know 120 years old, which in the scheme of things is fuck all. But it just um, <laughs> a, a fire just yeah gets rid of the dampness. So I actually find it really helpful. But um, no, I just had the trusty old push a button on the heater and there's warmth going today. Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But um, all right, let's get stuck into the nitty gritty. So I would really like to know where the origin of My Heart is a Little Wild Thing originated from because I saw in the acknowledgements there was a mention about Bobundura. Is that Bundra. Bobundura. Okay, I was Bobundra. Okay, well, way off, way off. <laughs> I can't wait to try and pronounce. Yeah, no, no, I'll get into the next one. No, 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 but yeah. <laughs> tell me, tell me about that, Nigel. What will happen there? Well, it actually sort of dates back a, a lot further than that, and this is just absolutely true. When I when I'd finished the novel and it and you know it was going to be um, published by um, my wonderful publisher Robert Watkins at uh, Ultimo, I was tidying my office. You know, when I'm writing, I tend to actually I'm quite a quite a tidy person, but I do end up making a huge mess, just papers everywhere and books everywhere and crap everywhere. And um, so I was actually, I thought, okay, done, I'm done. This manuscript is finally done. And uh, I was tidying up my writing room and right next to it is another little room 
which is my library and it's really a very small room. And um, I was just putting away some books and a journal popped out, literally fell out. I know if this was in a film, it would look really corny, but literally an old journal fell out of the bookshelf where I keep all my journals and it fell on the floor. And I went, oh, that's weird. I opened it up and where it had fallen on the floor, it had landed on a page where I'd written something about two characters, one of whom is in a bit of trouble, goes back to a farm, sees and I'm just not going to spoil it right now, but sees an animal, and I do actually write down what the animal is. Um, and then it said June or July. I can't remember that bit. What I do remember, it was 2007. It was dated 2007. So I had this idea that that this guy, a guy, something happens and he retreats to a property somewhere and he sees an animal that will change his life. That That was the core idea. I tried a whole heap of different versions of Patrick, my main character. Um, in fact, I haven't shared this with anyone, but um, he, he was called Kip, K-I-P at one stage. One stage he was 18, you know, once, you know, it, he just changed a lot. And, and at one stage the novel was actually set out near Crookhall, which is an hour west of me. At one stage it was a set uh, in Braidwood. This is all in New South Wales, mm. which is about southeast of Goulburn where my father lives. And then I did a recce down to uh, Nimitabel, which is just on the north of the Monero. And for those who don't know, the Monero is this barren landscape. It looks like Mars between the far south coast of New South Wales and the Snow Mountains. It's just this wide open rolling plain of nothing. And there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a, there's one theory that says it's always been barren and there's another theory that it's actually been made barren and whether it was First Nations people or later or a combination, no one really knows, but right now it's barren. And then um, I, yeah, so I, I did a recce and I went, yeah, this is where the novel needs to be. It needs to be right in the guts of this incredibly blue, it feels blue, it feels like a blue landscape. Um, and then I did another version and it just still wasn't sitting right Samuel, it just didn't feel, it just wasn't achieving what I was setting out to achieve. And through the, the black summer, um, bushfire summer, you know, where we were just wearing masks back then because of smoke, not because of a pandemic. And um, I, I, I had crossed paths on Instagram with somebody who lives and is the custodian of a property called Bobundra. And I knew her name, Tricia Dixon, because she's a, a writer, a landscape writer, and a very erudite person as well as a farmer. And she, I remember that my mother, who's a very bookish person, had garden landscape books written by Tricia Dixon. And just, I just sent her a message. I sent her a message via Instagram saying, you don't know me, but I'm a writer. I live in Goldman. I'm writing about the Monero. Do you have somewhere where I can stay? I'm very self-contained, very polite, you know, very respectful. Put me up in some shed somewhere. I don't care. And she goes, well, Nigel, I'd love to have you to stay. I'll put you up in the steading. I didn't even know what a steading was. Turns out that um, her daughter and um, son-in-law look after a property not far from Goulburn. So she did, we did have a coffee. She did come up to Goulburn and I guess she was just making sure I was, you know, a real person. And she goes, I'd love you to say, I'd love you to say. And then, of course, but then, then the Black Summer Bushfire happened and it got to February then in 2020. And she, I said, I still want to come down. She goes, no, I don't think you should do it. Literally, the farm, the farm almost burnt down a couple of days earlier. And she sent me photos and it was just red. It was like Malakuda. It was just red. And she said, look, the fire has passed. The road is open. You're not breaking any laws. You're not being irresponsible, but you're going to see a lot of smoke. Mm. And I just thought, thought to myself, I've been so looking forward to this. I know I need to do it. I'm going to do it. And, um, yeah, the road was totally open. There was no issues there. And I guess the fire had well and truly passed. And because there's no or very little bushland, we're completely safe. And I get there by Bundra. The phone doesn't work. Internet doesn't work. Nothing. You're 30 kilometres away from anything. It's just... You know, if you're bitten by a snake, you bug it. And um, Tricia is lovely. She just said, well, that's your building over there. And it's just this stone building. It's just this big, it's a heritage listed property, but there's just this stone building. And I thought, God, am I going to be put up in a, um, you know, amongst hay bales and kittens? Is that is that what I'm going to be doing here? And, of course, I'm very happy to do whatever, considering I've been given this for free. And then she opened the door and there's this, beautiful flat inside one half of the steading which is a scottish word for barn 
was just tractors and old bits of furniture and, you know, machinery that no longer works or does work and, you know, bloody containers of God knows what. And then the other half was this beautiful, where workers used to live. And she just, Trisha had done a little bit of work to it just to make it sort of livable. And I just went, my God, this is brilliant. And the re- I'll cut it there because I could keep going for another hour, but uh, the rest is history. I'm so blown away by um, it not being like you're not having a previous connection to the Monero because I thought one of the strongest elements of the novel was that uh, the, this sense of uh, belonging to to this to this place. Nigel, how do you pronounce is it? Jim and Bowen? Jim and Bowen? Uh, I, I say Jim and Bjorn. It's Jim made Bjorn. up. Jim and Bjorn. Yeah, yeah. I looked it up because 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 I was like, okay, well, I found somewhere, but it was nowhere near. No, yeah, no, yeah. and it's my it's my creative interpretation. Okay. Um, Bobundra, the farm I stayed in and and was very influential, is actually on the western side of the Monero, and I moved it to the eastern side, and then I rearranged the landscape a little bit and and made made it my own. Um, okay. And I think that was that was really important. But no, I have no connection to the Monero, other, other than I've spent thirty years of my life living in the sort of the, southern New South Wales and you know it's there and what's bizarre Samuel is that the Monero there's no sign saying you're entering a Monero I mean the Mon- Eden Monero is a as you probably know is a federal electorate but there's no sign saying you're inter- entering the Monero it just you're just driving along and the trees disappear and then you start to freak out because your phone dies and there's nothing there for 150 kilometers and when I was there it because just after the drought or the drought was ending and the bushfires, it literally looked like Mars. It was mm. red ground. Um, and when I say I took photos, of course, and when I've shown people, they said that that can't be in New South Wales. And it's just you could you could film a Mars movie there in a flash, and it would be so convincing. It's incredible. Well, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just so surprised by that because, yeah, that, that was the, the strong connection that one feels, particularly when Patrick returns. And there's kind of, there's a lot of different sort of questions I wanted to ask about that, particularly because one of the first thoughts he has when he does return, because obviously it's, it's a place that kind of served as a bit of a shaping of his childhood and then adulthood, really. But um, being surprised that to find evidence that it's continued on without him. It's almost like it's a it's a place that's frozen in time and only exists when when you return to it, like almost like a memory memory, but made flesh within this sort of scape. What do you think that is, Nigel? What is that about certain places that um, they exist only within our memory until we return and then find that that's not the case? Ah, it's a great question. You're the first person to bring that up. Um, I, I certainly I grew up in Sydney, um, spent the first eighteen years of my life there, and in fact, staying living in the same suburb, and. Um, it was either my childhood was either the beaches or it was the Blue Mountains, and we we didn't go anywhere else. Maybe a couple of little holidays with my mother and my brothers, but otherwise it was just the beach or the Blue Mountains. And um, there there is a place in the Blue Mountains which it's a house actually no longer exists. It was burnt down by a. It was just a very simple shed, and it was burnt down by an arsonist. Well, after my family sort of lit, stopped renting it, and I was very happy there. I know I was very very happy there. I had a very fraught family life. Parents hated each other, didn't sleep in the same room. It was they either fought or they tried to stay out of each other's way, but there was no love there. Um, but there was a lot of a lot of happiness when I was up um, in this place called Mount Wilson in the Blue Mountains, which just happens to be where Patrick White spent his um, childhood as well. And he's, he wrote about Mount Wilson as being a place of great happiness. And so I sort of transposed that to the Monero and created a character called Patrick, who's 45, lives in the same street as his mother in Bundanoon in the Southern Highlands. Um, and, yeah, after a massive fight because he sort of cares, caring for her and she's getting more and more difficult in her, in her health issues. And they have this massive fight. He goes, I've got to go somewhere. I've got to get myself out of this. Otherwise, I'll do something even worse. And he just, in a mad flash ends up in the Monero. And I think, I think maybe, you know, we all have these places that were, were very, were very happy. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think sometimes when I go back to Mount Wilson, I haven't gone back there very often, um, but when I have gone back there, I, yeah, the house no longer exists, but um, I, I stood in a garden where I was very happy and I could still feel that happiness in the soil and that sense of contentment and peace because in, in my childhood it was actually very rare to find those things and Patrick is the same. 
So I think for me, places have always been, I, I get attached to places um, very deeply and, and uh, I still go back to some of them and, and, um, and just look at them or stand in there and just go, my God, you know, it has still gone. I know it's very, I guess, very um, I don't know, narcissistic, I suppose, to think, wow, these places do go on with, without me. But, and of course they do, but the, the meaning is attached with the relationship we have with them, isn't it? It is. And it's interesting the way in which you describe like feeling the happiness through the soil, because there was another sort of question that kind of dovetails onto that. And like, it's that they're no longer, they're no longer two different sort of um, components. I feel when it becomes the emotion sort of fuses to the, the physicality of a place. And then you sort of, um, cause you described this lovely couple of pastures. There was one that was talking about, uh, mum was saying something like you were born in a tent, but her tone was lighter because she was in Jim Byrne, meaning she was happy, meaning we were happy. Uh, mm. Jim Byrne, she was giving me, she gave me the definition of happiness. And I think that's something that's interesting as well, Nigel. I kind of like, I wanted to hear a little bit about what you think that is to do with a memory, particularly a fond one or a traumatic one. I mean, there's traumatic memories that are revisited throughout the, the novel as well. But what a particularly positive memory can kind of then kind of transform the physicality or kind of seep into, as you said, with the soil. What is what is it about that in particular you feel that can then forevermore kind of um, within the best way sort of uh, positively affect an escape like that? Well, I think, um, you know, I, if I can answer that in a really roundabout way, I've just read an incredible memoir called Homesickness by Janine Makosa, um, another uh, uh, book published recently by my publisher, Ultimate Press. And, and in that, um, Janine talks about um, how places in a, rooms in a house will have different resonances. Mm. And, you know, some will have horrible memories. And maybe a lot of that time is the bathroom for some people. Um, and sometimes it's a bedroom or it's a, a room that's got a particular sort of, you know, vibe to it or feeling to it. And maybe it's got tall ceilings or low ceilings or something. And I think there's always room in a house that actually makes us feel happier than others. And, and I think there are landscapes and places that make us feel happier than others. And um, Patrick refers to, uh, Patrick's actually a sort of a failed architect and he refers to a sort of an architectural or urban design theory called Jay Appleton's Prospect Refuge Theory, which says that we like lookouts because we can see a long way and we can see an enemy coming. We can see bad weather coming. Um, and we always want something um, on it against our backs to, to protect us. And so that press, prospective prospect lookout sort of theory is that that's why we like to go to just even some corny bloody tourist thing because it feels great because you can see a heck of a long way. But if we get caught in these tiny little areas where we don't know what's coming, we feel awful. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So I think for Patrick, when he's down at the Monero, he, one thing that is, is amazing about it, people who, you know, live in the Monero, uh, say it's big sky country and mm. you feel very small, you feel very tiny. Um, the summers are very short and intense and the winters, of course, are very, very long and intense the people down there say that you can't grow tomatoes you can only grow them indoors because there's just not enough summer um and it's, it's true if you went walking at night or you got drunk walking home from the pub and and, and you know passed out in winter you would you, you would die mm. um so i think that i think we sort of respond to those dangerous environments by by, by i guess those for Patrick, you know, when he's in the building, in the barn, he's, you know, making a fire and it's cosy and he's got beautiful rooms, little rooms that he can feel comfortable, you know. But when he talks about opening his door and it feels, feels like the ocean can, could be lapping at his bed because it's just this rolling plane that goes on forever. So I think he, it, ironically, he felt very, very safe there. But I think he also felt safe because his mother felt safe. Yeah, there was. I think there's a description about um, if Sydney, Sydney's where he started, but um, Jim Bone is where he was happy. It was something like that. So it's like even though, and he feels like I think he expressed at some point he's kind of surprised because he's like I have no familial ties to this place, but this is kind of like I feel like I belong here, and that's also kind of I guess part of it. Yeah, I, and I think. Um... Uh, you know, as I said, Patrick Wyatt had a very close relationship to uh, Mount Wilson and the Blue Mountains, which was where his mother had a house. And it was his sort of a, a dreaming place. It was, you know, he called it, he had a place called Happy Valley. And I've actually tried to find Happy Valley at Mount Wilson. I don't think it exists. I actually have a feeling Patrick Wyatt made it up. 
But I think, um, and Patrick refers to this as well, my Patrick, that, and this is something that I, I guess a memory I gave to Patrick in the book that I remember very, very clearly as a young person, like very young a boy, hearing Patrick White on the radio talk about that happiness was not the point and of life. And I remember going, no, that's bloody, I want to be happy. I want to play footy outside, you know, with my brothers and my friends, you know, I want to ride my bike, you know, I want to do, you know, jumps and I want to read and, you know, I want to make a little garden and, you know, I want to go, you know, down to the coast and down to the beaches and I want to be happy, happy, happy. And I think, of course, as I've gotten older, I've realised I think what Patrick White was referring to, which is depth of experience is more mm. important. And that's, that's something that Patrick has always, Patrick in my book has missed out on because he's been so dedicated to pleasing his mother. Isn't it interesting, though, in the dedication of the pleasing, pleasing one's mother, Patrick pleasing his mother, that he's still, and there's obviously this, this about face of, of realising that she's always prior, he's, she's always been the priority, and I think he even mentions that specifically, he says she's always been the priority and obviously wants to take charge of his life in that regard. Um, but yet he still, throughout um, the remainder, the remaining half of the novel, um, tries to do things to, that he know will make her happy. There's some pruning or, or some clippings, um, that sort of thing. But kind of just a little bit lastly on what we were sort of talking about, the physicality of the landscape and how that's attached to memories, there's also the photography element as well, which kind of features throughout. And there's one point, and again, like I'm trying to tread carefully because I don't want to spoil stuff, but it's a moment that he shares, Patrick shares with his mother and tries to, I guess, kind of um, ignite those sort of feelings of happiness. And we've kind of already talked about that, uh, albeit through the use of a photo. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, Nigel, if, photo, if photos and photography can kind of uh, contain the sort of uh, power that's imbued with the sort of like larger physical state that we can't maybe go to. Yeah, great, great question. And I think there'll be others, <clears throat> visual artists and photo media artists who'd be better at um, this than me. I, I certainly, you know, could see that Patrick was trying to capture something. He was trying to <laughs> use photography to understand what this place is. And, and also because he's, he's, you know, he has done a terrible thing um, to his mother. And we, for those who are going to turn off the podcast at this point, we do find out a little bit there's a more nuanced, complicated sort of um, understanding of, of what that event is and perhaps much more sympathetic than it might sound. Um, and so he really wants to, when he's, well, because he's, he's only, be, only meant to be down there for a couple of days just mm. so he can just calm down and go back to his role of looking after his mother. And he, um, he wants to take photos and, and give them to his mother as a sort of a peace offering, as a way of saying, you know, I went back to Jim and Buren and um, it's still there and it's great. And here's a photo of where you were happy. And I think now you've got me thinking, I think he really wanted to go look at this, this gift I've given you. And mm. I, went back, I went back there and I felt happy and I'm going to pass that happiness back to you. And we do find through the course of the novel that she's on her own trajectory, which is unstoppable. Yeah, without being too on the nose, I feel like it's like the, akin to bringing, bringing like a bit of a, a guttering candle to someone that's potentially freezing. I don't know, that was pretty on the nose. Cancel that. Forget, forget what I just said. There. <laughs> no, no, I think, I, I think it's great. I think he does want to bring some sort of light and warmth and some comfort because maybe he doesn't know the trajectory that his mother's on at the beginning of the novel, but I, maybe he senses it. I think you're right in his guts that, you know, if he doesn't reach out for now at any way he can to... You know, if it's a candle, great, Patrick, knock yourself out. Mm. Isn't it interesting that it's not not just the memories of the actual physical space that um, that kind of define them, but also the living beings that sort of kind of co-inhabit these sort of spaces as well? I mean, like there's various different animals that I mentioned throughout. There's the mystery one, which will remain kind of a mystery for, for listeners. Um, there's the sugar glider, various different birds. And then also, obviously, the way in which Lewis is kind of, you know, like this, the, the living beings of trees and the planting of that. What is it about that as well, Nigel? Do you think that, that not just a space in which you yourself as a character or a person kind of uh, pass through, but also within the various different sort of living beings that you encounter as well? How does that serve to shape a memory? Um, yeah, I, I, look, I don't know how to answer that question, to be honest. I think that um, what I do remember when at the end of the Black Summer uh, bushfires and, and I was I spent that week down in Bobundra and, and listeners are probably only might have this impression too that I went down there and I rode for a, a week and it was just all just bliss and it was fantastic. It was actually the, it was actually the opposite. I was taking a, an earlier version of the manuscript to edit it in a, in a property and my, in the Monero and my, basically my goal was just to get 
those some of those little details right you know i was i was talking about cattle grids and people down in monero call them ramps they don't call them cattle grids so things like that i think are really important so that that was all i thought i was doing but within a couple of days i knew um that the manuscript was actually a failure and why i knew that is that um Tricia Dixon, who owns the property, is a very bookish person. So it's just even in the barn, there's books everywhere. And um, I do, you know, do a good solid morning of editing. And then I saw a Stephen Fry biography on the bookshelves. And I thought, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm neither here nor there on Stephen Fry, but I thought, oh, I'll read his biography. And then I go and I put that away and do a bit more editing. And I thought, I might just, might just read the Stephen, do a bit more on, on Fry. And then I started to realise, quite honestly, if I had my novel, if I was there in the barn and there was my novel on the shelf and Stephen Fry's novel, my memoir on the shelf, I would, I would choose the Stephen Fry because it is very entertaining and funny and beautiful and lovely and poignant. And I thought there's something in that then. If, if I, even as I as a writer, would prefer to read that than mine, then there's something wrong. And um, so I just sat on the barn steps one evening with a glass of wine and, and I was just looking out across this landscape and, and I thought, God, if there was just someone planting trees, I would just go up to them and say, can I, can I just give you a hand? Look, you just tell me what to do. I just get this my spade out and dig holes. You just tell me what to do. And that'll be a good use of my time. Fuck the manuscripts. I'm just going to plant trees. And then I thought, uh-huh. Imagine if Patrick comes down here, he can't just wander around taking photos. He's got to do something. And maybe he has to plant some trees. But I can't have him just getting a spade and some trees and that doesn't make a novel. And then I thought, okay, he's going he's gonna to go up to a guy and go, can I plant some trees? And I thought, that, that doesn't actually make a novel either. That's too easy. So I remembered, I think, that note I wrote in 2007 in my journal. He's got to see something that leads him to see somebody who's planting trees. And that's where my mystery animal comes in. And so this, this animal, which which for Patrick may or may not exist, but he follows it anyway and he follows it through the bush. He almost gets lost and there's that sort of moment where he does see a guy planting trees and they have this, Patrick sort of just checks him out, just going, you know, you know, you know, Patrick's 45 and he's just going, you're an intriguing chap. And he goes, okay, leave him alone. I'm getting a bit pervy now. It's getting a bit awkward. And he does a Yui and walks through the bush and he goes, fuck, what am I doing? Why, why don't I just go? And, why don't I? Why don't I go and plant some trees? How hard is it? And I guess we sort of see him being so nervous and cautious and worried about stuff. And he goes, "No, no, I'm doing it." And and I and I, I think that this animal actually worked its magic on Patrick. And mm. and and he, you know, they have him. They yeah, Patrick actually, you know, trips over one of those embarrassing things, isn't it? We've all probably done it where you see someone lovely when you're out and about and you just go, oh, they're lovely. And then you just go up to them, just have a nice polite chat. And then you just, you know, slip on a slip on an old beer can or something. And so that's what happens to Patrick. And then from there, um, Lewis actually says, cross, you know, basically cross the fence line, come on. And, and that's marking a new stage in the evolution of poor old Patrick. Very much. And I mean, we've talked about memories, we've talked about physical, physical landscapes, about other animals, etc. And now let's get to the, the core of it with Lewis and Patrick, because one thing I found interesting, and I'm treading carefully because I don't want to kind of spoil anything, but one element I wanted to talk just finally about memories is don't you find it interesting, Nigel, that one of us, you can have a shared experience with someone else or multiple people. And it can be a case of that memory was had such a profound impact that a person carries that with them for life. And the other person doesn't even remember it. Isn't that interesting? I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. And I wanted, because obviously that's something that must have intrigued you to, to within the writing of the novel. But what, what is that that you, that you think? Because, because on the flip side of that, that would be the exact same thing with the roles reversed for another person, whereby they would uh, have something that they found to be so true, but they didn't retain the memory. But for you, it's been defined a life or it's something that you've carried with for life. What is that about memory in particular, do you think, that does that, particularly with us? I, and th- yeah, thank you so much for going there. Um, you're the first, again, you're the first person to go go to this this um, element. And, and yeah, we're sort of skirting around it because it's kind of a, a plot point. But you know, it's just, you know, I'm 53. I was born in 1968 and I, and I was 15. So I was 15 in 1983. And um, so I was growing up in Sydney and uh, I, I knew, you know, I guess it 
everyone starts to explore their sexuality. I went to an all boys school and you, you know, you'd think, you know, <laughs> all boys school, look out, that'd be great. But there was just nothing going on. At least I knew nothing. I couldn't see anything that was going on, you know, in terms of, you know, homosexuality or anything. And, um, uh, but also New South Wales Palmer was actually debating to get rid of basically was that it was sodomy laws, but everyone, you know, interpreted them as, as anti-gay laws. And, um, and so I remember, re, you know, looking at the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald and there was just all these headlines for months and months. And, you know, it was a bit like during the plebiscite for marriage equality. We just had all these stories for months. So that's what had been happening in 1983. And I remember going, oh, right, they're getting rid of this law. Okay, I'm not sure how that I fit into that, but I think it's about me. And I remember there was... Or there was a, and this is this memory stuff, I remember there was just a silhouette, I guess because newspapers were a bit rudimentary back then, and it was just a silhouette of two guys hugging. And I remember just thinking, oh, I just don't want to do that. And then I remember thinking, oh, fuck. Are they talking about laws that relate to me? And I, so it was all swirling stuff around here. I wasn't either scared or anything. I was just intrigued by it all. But then what else happened in 1983 is AIDS came to Australia. Mm. So at that time, you know, where I was just starting, and I did have, at the age of 15, I did have a love affair with a, a classmate, at, you know, someone of the same age. And, you know, all these things going on, you know, politicians debating to get rid of some of these laws to make the water slightly safer for us. Um, you know, the church was against us. You know, the medical profession still thought it was a mental illness. Um, the families were against the schools just did not want to know about it um, and then AIDS come, comes along so for, for us it was like oh great now if I touch this guy that I really love and I'm desperately in love with I will die that that was the impression I got and you know again some of this you know Patrick who's a little bit older than me but he has the same sort of experience and from those grim reaper advertisements mm. I mean sure they worked but it fucked a lot of people up and so it, it just really did you did go, I think that guy's gay then and I'm gay. And so if we touch, like, does it come, does AIDS come through the skin, like fold hands? What if he's got a cut in his fingernail, like, you know? And so the idea of kissing a guy or anything that was just completely nowhere. So I think that for men of a certain age and women of a certain age, that particularly men, I think, that... Um, that if you wanted to explore that, it was a very dangerous thing to do. You, and, and, of course, back then, AIDS was a death sentence. You would, you would get the sarcomas and you would be dead within months. So um, I think for us that some of those little touches have this huge power. But, of course, we all have those, don't we? You know, the mm -hmm. first time that you you might just, in a consensual way, of course, just, you know, you might just hold hands with somebody and you just probably never forget that because your body is just going, whoa, this is brilliant. Or your first meaningful kiss or first meaningful look and you go, I don't think that's friendship. I think it's something else. And I don't think we forget that. And I think we hold that stuff literally in our bodies. Isn't it interesting that you, I mean, like the, there was the fear and yeah, I remember you mentioning in the novel the, the Grim Reaper ads and stuff like that. Um, but Patrick... Uh, didn't fully explore the, the sexual element. I mean, there's the beach, the beach stuff, but in terms of uh, still having these kind of very deep, very loving sort of relationships with, um, I think that one was Elliot, one was Percy, and one was Sumner. Sumner was the main, the main, and I thought that was actually a, a reference to Sumner Lock Elliot. So I was like, oh, was that was it? Was it? Is that a thumbs up? Oh, how good am I? Okay, fantastic. Um, the thing Again, the first person who, who pointed that out. And no, surely who, not, surely not, surely not. No, surely absolutely. Not. And, you're, and, and um, for those who aren't aware, that some Lock Elliot was an Australian, a gay Australian um, novelist from around the 40s and he did write um, Fairyland, yeah, Fairyland about gay, gay Sydney and also um, Careful He Might Hear You. And, and um, yeah, so um, in Bodies of Man, there's a cottage and it's called Lock Cottage. And I thought just to mirror that in um, My Heart is a Wild Thing, I would, I'd uh, refer to Sumner and and um, and then there's an Elliot as well. So yeah, there you go. I feel so feel so special now that I picked up on that. But um, <laughs> the way in which so 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 the, it wasn't kind of a physical relationship. But the, I don't again, I don't want to verge too far down there because that's just going to lead to spoiling and stuff like that. This is interesting that we can have these relationships where the love is clear, but the contents of the person's character, their mind, etc., remains a mystery, and we're content to 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 have that it's not necessarily a trade-off it's just an acceptance that a person can remain a mystery to us but the the love that kind of defines it is clear what do you think about that nigel is that something that kind of you wanted about too oh, absolutely and I, you know i think we've all fallen in love with people we shouldn't have or we just don't know why we're falling in love with people you know 
I've known, and I say this with great dis- great respect, that um, you know people who are deeply religious and they can't, they just they just try to fall in love with other religious people. And one friend ended up just falling in love with an atheist and, and she was quite late in life. And she just went, you know what, we're just going to have to make this work because I love you, <laughs> you know, and she just, you know, um, you know, re- you know, really rejected that kind of idea all the way through. And then she just like, God, oh, so to speak, fall in love with this guy who's an atheist. How does that work? You know, I've known really lovely people who've just fallen in love with really quite dark and still lovely people, but, you know, still quite dark, tortured souls. So how does all that work? I think, though, that, that um, again, right, and I'm glad the world has changed, maybe for many people, but not for most, is that sometimes I think guys, at a, I don't like using this word liminal, but maybe it's right in this instance where at a certain age, anything is possible. And, you know, maybe they're normally straight, and but they've, they've you know, they've, got a friendship with a guy and it just starts to slip into a gray area and i love those gray areas i've loved those gray areas my whole life i've had some really intense relationships with straight men um uh, unrequited physically but emotionally they've been incredibly intense and sometimes i've just wondered maybe in a different era that they would have slipped into something else um and so i'm really interested in those tricky relationships where we do fall in love with people who really can't you know, love us back. And poor old Patrick just has those over and over and over again. Um, and, uh, you know, thank goodness Lewis comes along. We were talking about um, having these really intense, emotionally intense relationships um, that no, might not necessarily ever be consummated into a sexual element, but the, the love that was was there was there all the same. And before we get to talking about sex, because I definitely want to talk about sex in a sec, but before we do, um, in the, the lead up to to the sex with the meaning of Patrick and Lewis. Now, again, I don't think I'm, I'm being too spoily and I'm going to be careful what I say, but, and I know I've brought up memory a lot, but I feel like memory is so, so important throughout the theme running throughout the novel. I feel like it's almost a more intimate act, the sharing of memories, particularly those that might be traumatic or otherwise sort of formative uh, sometimes than sex itself, certainly within my own sort of experience there. What do you think that is though, Nigel? Do you think that was, what's something, why is it so intimate to share memories than even the act of sex sometimes? Yeah, okay. And you're just really um, going into this novel in such great detail and I, I appreciate it so much. Um, I think, um, uh, you know, I, I think I, I've always appreciated those who, you know, just want to share stuff with you or you mm. feel very, you feel close enough and comfortable enough to share some, some amazing stuff. And, you know, I, for, for me, you know, I'm, I'm an act, active gay guy. I've been with my partner for 25 years and um, I certainly did, have not had Patrick life. I, I disobeyed my mother. I, I went off on my own trajectory and, and, um, and I'm glad I did that. Um, but um I, you know, I've, I've, what am I trying to say? I think sometimes when I read gay novels or see, see gay films or the gay experience, and I guess it's just because we're all coming from different experiences and different eras, but either the sex isn't dealt with at all or it's dealt with in a very sort of perfunctionary way and it's just, you know, the act is done and then we move on and we just go back to dancing and having more cocktails, whatever. And, and to me... And it sounds very noble and earnest, I know, but it's just me, so people just have to accept it. Is I, I'm much more interested in the sex, situating sex in a broader emotional and um, almost spiritual way. And I don't mean that in a religious way. I'm just interested in what sex does in terms of true connection. And that a part of that is, I think, sharing memories. And, you know, I, I th- the older I get, Samuel, the more I just realise that life really is about, is a, is a whole of body experience, you know, and maybe in this Western neoliberal bloody society we live in in Australia, hopefully things now will get a bit better. But um, that, that it's all just about head stuff. It's all just, just head. But really life is about the whole body and it's about all the organs and everything that goes on in our bodies and maybe people from different cultures are much better at accepting that and I think we hold memories in our bodies and so I think to me it's really natural when Patrick and Lewis do actually you know say to each other like tell me something you've never told somebody else I actually find that as you allude to uh, it was an act of sharing but I actually find it really intimate even sensual even sexual and you know, not this my partner would probably hate this, but you know, you know, when Tim and I do share stuff, uh, you know, 
you know, a fear. It, it feels like a really uh, another bonding moment. And that's, that just sounds so naff the way I've said it, but I think it's all these different ways, <laughs> you know, all the different ways that a human being can connect with somebody else. And it's, I, I guess I want to bring those layers to the gay experience and the gay experience on the page. What about the actual writing of the sex itself, Nigel? Because I mean, the last the last work of yours that I read and I had the good immense good fortune of talking to you about was Bodies of Men. I remember we discussed that, albeit kind of uh, much much more briefly, because um, there was there wasn't all that much. Uh, I think there was a, there was the just right amount in there, and I think that you you described at the time. I think you said um, something like "Where's the effect of well, not a shrinking violet?" I think that was the term you used to describe, and I thought it was very good the way that you put that because because obviously. It wasn't. Um, it never. It never felt like it, it was. It was shied away from. It just felt that I, I don't know if it was like a, that. That kind of core of the story. If you felt they need to include that, whereas obviously within this novel, there's there's, there's much more of it. But I wanted to know that sort of because I guess writing sex is so challenging, even if it's even if it's written as earnestly as possible. And I wondered how you went about doing that, uh, and if that was at any point in your head as to the challenges of that, or if you just wrote it out exactly as you envisioned it. And then that's how it, it came out because it was incredibly earnest. It wasn't gratuitous. It didn't shy away. Like the two the elements that you've talked about there, which is um, what can happen if engaged sure in cinema, whereby it's, it's either kind of perfunctionally shown or not at all. So yeah. What sort of challenges did you face there with that, Nigel? Or did that not even kind of come into the equation at all? So, so just a quick, quick sort of sort of context. There is um, after that um, amazing week down at Bobundra, and I have to keep reminding myself it was just a week. Felt like I was there for years, but um, once I knew the, I, I got the new story, and I thought I'm just going to ch- chuck out the manuscript, and I went home, drove back to Goulburn, which is about three hours away, and I wrote the first draft in 14 days by hand, by by pen on paper. I just, it just, I, it just, I felt I knew what I was going to do. Um, and I wrote the first draft. It was quite short. It was only about 45,000 words or something, but I just wrote it out. The sex was there, but it wasn't. So that's something that I worked on. Um, so I'd hate to give the impression that I just wrote it out and there it was. And, you know, Mr. Wonderful, Mr. Watkins at Ultimo just published it. But, no, I worked on the, I worked on the sex a lot. Um, and interesting to compare Bodies of Men to uh, Wild Thing because Bodies of Men is a World War II story um, those two boys were, were born in 1920 and they do have sex. And it's interesting in a number of people, including gay guys, go, oh, Nigel, I just wish they'd had sex. I went, they definitely had sex. Um, but, you know, they're of a particular era. It's, it's, it, it, they're, it, war is going on. They're, one of them is deserting. So they've got a lot on their plate. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't think that they... And James in Bodies of Men is actually very comfortable in his sexuality, despite the era, but William definitely isn't. So I just didn't think either of them would spend pages, you know, you know, talk, you know, describing mm-hmm. the mechanics of it. But we've got um, uh, Patrick, who's born in the mid '60s, um, despite being being still closeted, uh, you know, he has been having sex, and readers can find out for themselves what he's actually been doing. Um, and, and for a lot of men, that's what they've been doing. They, and a lot of men still do do that when they don't feel that they can come out, but they find a way f- to have that sexual experience. Um, but for, 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 for Patrick, because he's a sensitive, thoughtful, intelligent guy, I, I realised that he was the sort of person who he has spent all this time, he has not had proper meaningful sex in his whole life. He's 45, essentially an emotional virgin to that point. It pretty well actually is a virgin now I think about it and so for him when he finally does various things you know he dwells on them and I think we do do that I think for all, everyone of various sexualities all sexualities when you finally do something or something happens or you have a wonderful experience you don't you don't forget it I remember the first time I, I, I kissed a guy I'll, I'll take that to the grave and I think that um we all have those wonderful incredible moments where we just think wow right now this is what life's all about and, but for Patrick, you know, I realise, I mean, he's an architect, he's a creative guy, and I think that he wants to document um, uh, these experiences. And one thing that's important for us to point out, I think, Samuel, is that this is actually written as Patrick's memoir. Mm. It's written a few years down the track, and he's looking back on this time of his life, these six years where life changed for him. And it's his memoir, and I knew I was writing his memoir. And, you know, as sometimes we do in memoirs, we'll actually... Um, 
share something that's really quite intimate. And um, it's interesting that on Saturday there was a review. I know you don't usually put much, you know, weight to reviews, but there's a review in the Saturday paper saying that the sex comes across a bit smuttily. 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 And I'll I turned be to Tim. I'll probably be flooded by that. I know. Actually, to be honest. I know. I turned to Tim. Said bad. I made it. I've made it. I'm obscene at last. You know. Purveyor of smart. Oh, I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. I'm, I seriously might. Um, or just smart. Um, but but it's interesting when I looked up that word. It just means um, uh, obscene. Uh, but to be fair to the reviewer, she goes on to say that it's appropriate because Patrick is a guy that he is going to think about all these various things. And, you know, I don't think he goes on about them for pages or, you know, gets all sort of too crass about it. But when he discovers something that is a really nice experience, like he puts it down on the page. That's the way, that was completely my interpretation of it, was it was the the kind of the virgin angle and 45-year-old, male uh finally getting to do things with someone that looks nice uh would probably i'd probably be uh thinking about that for a very long time uh taking up a lot of pages so no no and i did think that as well with the contrast nigel bodies of men um can um in terms of the novel so yeah um no it wasn't really gratuitous but i'll definitely i'll definitely cop um smuddly smuddly is a good one definitely get that shirt i think you should definitely get that shirt okay sponsored by the right way podcast i think absolutely look (sighs) Weird, weird transition, but I want to get into it because there's, there's no way I can possibly finish the podcast without us at least delving into this a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about, obviously, because it's Patrick's life, and, I mean, it's not necessarily the, the complete core of the novel. I'd argue there's, there's various different interpretations of that. His devotion to his mother and, obviously, the changing of the, the, the attitude towards that and this perceiving of, of going striking out on his own. Must oh, Completely random, but I've just got to tell you that the opening line, Nigel, is, like, one of the best opening lines I have read, like, like I was trying to think of the last similar opening line. Anyway, anyway, I digress. Thank you, Zim. I, I digress. But anyway, so... I almost got rid of it. Well, I'm so glad you didn't. I'm so glad you didn't. I'm so glad you didn't. I was really worried about it because it's quite... It is it's really full on. And, and I said to a very... I, had, I, I asked a very famous Australian writer who writes about misogyny and I said, I'm really, really concerned about this line. And, and she said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to soften it. And I've got some examples. Can I run them past you? And she goes, sure, run them past me. And I said, there's this, this, this alternative or this alternative. And she said, Nigel, both of those are truly awful. <laughs> she said, did, did the novel take off from that opening line or not? I said, oh, it took off. She goes, we're just going to have to level up and cope with it. Well, I'm so glad. The mind boggles as to who that could possibly be because I know that you that you certainly move with some literary literary luminaries there. So, yeah, that's um, that's something you could take to the grave as well. But I'm so glad that you did listen to her about that as well because yeah, the end result is there for, for readers and listeners. But anyway, in terms of um, yeah, the striking out of this new attitude and then kind of uh, how it doesn't necessarily change, but it does alter somewhat when um. Patrick's mother's condition deteriorates. And again, I don't think that's spoiling too much because I'm pretty sure that's on the back there. So listeners, don't, don't go after me for that. But there's one conversation that happens between Lewis and Patrick about the, this very same, exact same sort of situation. And it's talking about how it's not just our obligation, but it's our privilege as well to take care of our, of our parents as they deteriorate. And I just, I was dying to hear about you about the, with this, with this sort of um, theme there, Nigel, because it's so important to the story and I had to ask you about it. Tell me more about this, this, this feeling about that it's not just an obligation, it's also a privilege as well to kind of look after our uh, parents as they kind of grow older and deteriorate. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to answer that by putting it into a bit of context, and it might sound completely bizarre, but I actually see this as an environmental novel. Mm. What is a Man was my war, war novel and this is my environmental novel. And the, um, the, uh, the, the epigraph at the beginning of the novel, of course, is um, from Paul Verlaine and it says to live again undying. And, I, it, it, and, and for him it's a love poem, but for me it's actually 
for us to live in an environment which is not dying. And I guess, you know, you know, over the last five years, we've just had so much environmental catastrophe. You know, how much more can we cope with? And it's certainly not a climate change novel, but it's an environmental novel where I just don't think that we can be healthy without the environment around us being healthy. And, um, and, and you know, a, a lot of people in various communities will actually just know that that's just a fact. And because I did write this just after that summer where we're wearing masks because we couldn't breathe, um, I, I wanted to explore this notion of if the landscape is not healthy, then we're not healthy. And in a way, and again, you've got me thinking about this, that with Meredith, which is Patrick's mother, she is, she is, her health is deteriorating. She's in her 80s and her life is about to um, end. Um, she, I think she symbolises or is a symbol of a landscape that, and an environment that is just, is just cactus. And if we don't do something about it, we're all going to, in the same direction as Peron Meredith. And I, I actually really do believe, believe that is the case. Um, and so when you go back to your question, you know, the obligation to look after our parents is, is absolutely correct. My mother has died of dementia um, and my grandmother died of dementia as well. So I have those experiences, but I didn't actually look after my mother. In fact, I was estranged from my mother for the last five years of her life. And it was only in the last year that um, uh, I put a lot of work into correcting that. And we were reconciled. Um, and we did, even when she was 99% demented, we still had these lovely moments. Um, and somehow she was able to break out of dementia and just say wonderful things. So, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I did do some reconnecting and um, I was with her and I, I saw her 48 hours before she died. I, I thought I'd be with her when she died, but um, she kept going for another two days. Um, so, yeah, I think we do have an absolute obligation and we have, there's a lot of wonderful learning and growth and connection that comes from um, looking after someone. And even though dementia is just, man, what a fuck disease it is. It's just awful. You know, the person is just, just eroded in front of your eyes and you don't know where they're going. And in a way, I think it's worse than death. And Patrick makes that point too, that mm. he, re he realises what's happening to her is not just death, it's something else entirely. Um, and, yeah, you know, we do. And I, my father is still alive. He's 93 and a half and um, very frail. And um, I, I'm, my relation with my father is, um, has always been very solid. Um, and... Um, I still often think, you know, I see him all the time and we talk all the time and I, I'm very much involved in his life, but I kind of feel like I should be there, you know, 24-7, holding his hand and helping him cross the street. Um, so I don't know whether that answers your question, but I do see a connection between the obligation to care for a frail person is the same as caring for a frail planet. I didn't think of that until you pointed that out. So now I'm going to go and be thinking about that later tonight as well. But how was the writing of that then, Nigel? Because that's, I mean, dementia is completely, I mean, I've, I, I haven't, I haven't brushed up against it yet, but dementia is just completely fucked. It's fucking evil. So like in terms of the writing of that, how, how was that? Was that, was that something, I mean, naturally was there, was there, was there, was it cathartic? Was there a disconnect? Was, was it, was it really tough going or? Um, I, there, there is no doubt in my mind that, um, you know, one of, one of the things that drove this, the novel is that once my mother died, and like a lot of people do, you go, God, who was she? Now she's gone, I want to ask her. And you can ask her friends who are still alive or she has a sister who's much younger who's still alive and you can ask, but that's their interpretation of who, who my mother was. And so I, one driver of this novel was who was she and to create a character who could, I think, be a better son than me. And I think George Saunders, you know, the Booker Prize winner of... Mm. Um, Lincoln and the Bardo. Lincoln and the yeah, yeah, he talks about sometimes our characters are better versions of ourselves. And I think, in a way, Patrick is a better version of, of much better version of me, but he's also stuffed because of his loyalty to his mother. Mm. But it was very important to me that... Um, uh, I was exploring these with different people. I'm not Patrick and Meredith is not my mother, but I think there is no way, there, there is, there's no way that I, I, let me say that in a more positive way. I was certainly working my way, not so much through grief. In fact, um, no, it wasn't grief, but I was asking, using fiction to ask lots of questions about 
how do you let someone go who is slowly and sometimes quickly dementing? It's, it was my way of working through it through poor old Patrick. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, the way it's described, particularly what you just mentioned in terms of the questions that he asked as well. So who are you, mum? Where are you going? Kind of thing. I mean, there's a lot of questions that sort of plague him throughout the, the latter half of the novel. And but just, there was just the, the element of um, earnestness and realism that, yeah, I just, I wondered and now I know. So yeah, a lot more food for thought for me to go and think about kind of later. I, I I think it. I think it. Um, you know, I, I do. I do believe that being a fiction writer of fiction, you know, it's an act of compassion. It's an act of empathy. It's an act of creative connection and walking in other people's shoes. All those sorts of things. And there's lots of complexity. And I, don't, and I think there are some very good reasons why we shouldn't go in various places, particularly a privileged uh, white bloke like like me. Um, but I don't think that I could have written about a mother dying of dementia without having experienced it mm. uh, i think it's um uh yeah I, you, you know something you could do through you know really good research and asking lots of questions of people who've been through it but it's only my experience and, and patrick's experience is similar to mine very much well yeah so Nigel, I want to end up with a question that I didn't get to ask you the first time I interviewed you with Bodies of Men because I hadn't created the podcast yet. So the podcast, when I created it, the main crux of the the show was always going to be I wanted to talking about uh, the challenges that writers face if they've sort of reached a crossroads at, at any point in their writing whereby they almost kind of gave up from any sort of reason, if it was a if it was a split-second decision or if it was kind of a prolonged period or some some don't experience it at all. But I wanted to, to hear from you, Nigel, and hear if you yourself had encountered any sort of a crossroads like that where you considered uh, giving up writing at all. And if so, what kind of made you prevail? Um, look, look, and it, I'm not being super serious, but it's a, it's a daily proposition for me. It, it, and it honestly is, you know, uh, I am lucky that I can write most days and most days I'll go, oh, man, I can't do this. Um, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I, even today, I was thinking the only way that I think I can write a novel is if I just forget everything else in my head and maybe I can just got enough brain power. Um, you know, don't worry about bills and don't worry about anything else and just, just it's kind of like, you know, getting rid of everything off your laptop so that all you've got to do is just run Word and that maybe my brain can just run Word if I get rid of everything off the laptop. Um, so, yeah, it's a daily proposition. I, I think that um, um, if I'm really blunt, um, I sometimes worry that in this modern writerly world, we're creating this environment where writing is a game that people are trying to win. Mm-hmm. You know, you know they, they want the book in the bookshop. They want their name in the, on the cover. You know, they want to go on a book tour. You know, they want to be interviewed on a bod- podcast. All of that is lovely, by the way. But and, and, and I should say that the conversations, these conversations are incredibly rewarding. And I'll be really honest, if I go into a bookshop and see my book, it's a very empty feeling. It's actually not a feeling of yay me, partly because I know that every, uh, an average bookshop has to have 20,000 titles. So it's actually quite humbling to go in there. And even if you see six copies, you know, you, I, don't, I, walk out, I walk out just being very, 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 very humbled. Um, uh, so for, for me, what, what I think really drives making art is a, a need to say something or a need to explore something, or a need to find out something, or a need to document something. Uh, and, and, and the writing, the actual the book in itself is just an end product, but the real meaning comes from actually the doing of it. Um, and so I think if I am struggling with something, a piece of writing, I'll actually think, so why am I writing it then? Mm. If, it's just, if it's just to sound clever, that's not going to be enough. If it's just to be published by me engine, it's just not going to be enough. If it's just, you know, I really want to win this award, that's a bullshit reason to write something. But if there's something that we're really fucking angry about, you know, Marlon James talks about that. What, what makes you angry? You know, is it an injustice? You know, is it prejudice? Is it you saw something horrible in the street and you want to explore that? 
that that's what I think really where good art comes from. And I, and I've been very open that um, I did twelve drafts in the end of my heart is little wild thing, but I did forty of bodies of men. And yeah, I remember and, talking about the amount of drafts. And, and 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 I there was a I had a collapse I had a nervous collapse and it does sound like oh my god bloody you know artist Nigel has a nervous breakdown, but I had a I I collapsed on the ground, and I, I I thought I was either having a heart attack or a stroke, and I was lucky we was with two people and I couldn't talk for about it's like I was paralytic you know when you're so drunk you just go oh, no, I love you, that's what I was like for about twenty minutes after this mini nervous breakdown, and. Um, and I kept going with this novel, with Bodies of Men, and I thought, God, why am I doing this? I've literally almost, I've almost, you know, damaged myself. And I realised that I was so pissed off with the way that Australia treats its military history, how it is, just lies its way through military history for political purpose. And it really pissed me off that we treat young white male Australian soldiers as the epitome of existence. And we do that every year on a particular day. And it just really, really pissed me off. And I want that's what Bodies of Men is is actually about. And and for for this book, what it was a completely different motivation. It was actually what if I obeyed my mother? She didn't want me to be a writer, she didn't want me to be gay, and she wanted me to live in her street. And there was actually, you know, I've spoken a bit my mother, but it was a very loving relationship. But I thought, what would be my life have been like if I had obeyed her? And poor old, that's poor old Patrick. And my mission was never to say, God, you know, my mother was very difficult or challenging um, at all. My mission was just to wonder what would have happened if I had not gone off on my own path. And then I wanted to create a scenario where I could then help that character find his way. But also that broader sense of, God, if we are just going to destroy the environment we're living in, we're all fucked. And Delia Faulkner has written this incredible essay called The Opposite of Glamour for the Sydney Review of Books. And she won a Walkley for it. And I just encourage everybody to read it as a piece of writing. But she basically says... How, how are we going to be special? How, do we, how are we going to find wonder in this planet if all we're left with is rats and carp? And that's where we're heading. You know, and I was, I was reading another book about extinction for only recently, and they said, think of every, all the animals and wonderful things you've seen today, even in Sydney, you know, rainbow lorikeets, maybe you've seen a possum, maybe you've seen bats, maybe you've seen a wren, maybe you've seen all these wonderful things. Well, in a few years, it'll be half that. That's a horrible thought. And then a few years after that, we'll end up with rats and carp. So I just can't let that, let that go. And, and um, so very long-winded answer, but so I think we make art because something really, really, really drives us. And I think if sometimes people are sort of getting despondent or things are flat, often say, write about what makes you angry, echoing Marlon James, or write about what really scares you. And I think that that'll, that'll often push an artist to go in a direction that might be really frightening. And I was really open about saying that with Wild Thing, I was shit scared about how it'd be received. I was literally, re- I actually remember saying to Tim, I hope Robert Watkins rejects it because I don't want it in the world. And of course that meant I was just scared and it was very important to me. So when did that change? How long ago? was that? Just a fleeting sort of sort of period, or was that something that kind of plagued you for days, or like longer? How did that kind of? How'd you grow out of that? Does that just pass? I, I think now, now it's out in the world, and people are saying you know lovely things about it. I think okay, it's it's fine. And um, when I actually got the final box of books from Ultimo and I opened it, and literally, Samuel, my first thought was, ah, oh, how wonderful! And I hope Patrick's memoir goes well. And maybe I'm just sort of, you know, passing the responsibility to him, but I just thought it's his book now and it's, it's nothing to do with me and I just hope it sort of goes really well. Well, um, by all accounts, particularly the, um, the smuddly description, I think that's been going very, very well. And obviously I love your writing and I love getting the opportunity to talk to you, Nigel. So thank you and so you, much. Samuel.
Thank you so much. Been, for- I absolutely adored the conversation and you've got me finding new elements of the novel and that's the mark of a, a fantastic little discussion. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it because you've got me finding new elements now in terms of I'm going to go off and think about this sort of environmental sort of allegorical sort of slant as well. So a lot of food for thought, but yeah, thank you so much, Nigel. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. So everyone, there you have it. That was me talking to Nigel Featherstone about his new book, My Heart is a Little Wild Thing. So huge thanks to Nigel for talking to me on the program, being such a lovely guest, lovely writer, a lovely human being to discuss the craft of writing and his work with me on the show. So yes, huge thanks to Nigel for doing so. And while I'm in the thanking mood, also huge thanks to you for listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program, as well as all others in that what we like to refer to aptly and lovingly as the ever proliferating back catalog of the show. Uh, if you haven't already, if you've stumbled across this episode, well, welcome. Uh, a lot more coming your way. But while you're at it and uh, salivating and waiting for more episodes and patiently, then go back and listen to that ever-proliferating back catalogue, as we like to call it there, which now extends uh, as far back as late November 2020, when we started off, or when I started off, clawing at the dirt, barely knowing how to set up a podcast, much less record it, and just, uh, yeah, just powered along by the aspirations of getting to talk to some really cool writers about their craft and yeah since then it's just uh, gone on from there in the best and most wondrous way possible so i aim to continue doing that for the foreseeable future but yeah if you haven't already please also give a cheeky like uh and follow on spotify or soundcloud if you listen to it on there as well as well as being sure to tell any and every single person that you know tell them all about it get them to to check out the apps as well i keep hearing more and more about that and more and more people stumbling across the show or having it recommended to them and that really while we're talking about uh my hardest little wild thing my hardest little wild thing when i hear about that uh, sort of recommendation promotion there. So thank you so very much for doing that as well. In the interim, I will continue to release episodes. Got a few more coming out as well. Really also hope to see uh, as many of you as I could possibly make it this Friday night uh, for my launch of the or hosting duties of uh, Hayley Scribner's new uh, debut novel, Dirt Town, which is incredibly exciting as well. Uh, so I can't wait for that event and I very much hope to see a lot of you down there at Bad Red Than Dead at 6.30 on Friday night. This coming Friday night, I can't wait to talk to Haley about Dirt Town. Uh, so yeah, I'm really hoping that you come down. I can't wait to talk to Haley. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned for that. But in the interim, if you can't make it, fret not. Uh, I'm very much hopeful that I'm going to be, going to be able to upload a recording of that uh, that event. Or if not, uh, I'm sure that Mina, uh, Haley and I will be able to have a chat a little bit later uh, somewhere else, albeit via the normal traditional podcast recording medium that I'm now speaking to you on. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Get excited for that. Uh, but yeah, in the interim, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And I bid you all a most pleasant evening.